Hello and welcome to episode 348 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com. This episode will air on Monday, May 2nd, 2022. <laughs> Why do you have this comment here about Brittany? Because I just want to send our our best wishes to uh, very valued team member Brittany. Is yeah, she a is a very today. <laughs> Okay. And we're, I just didn't know if this is like a reminder to you personally or for the world at large. But okay, I just dear wanted listeners, to make sure that we shouted out to Brittany that we were thinking of her and we wish her a speedy recovery. Absolutely. Yes. She, good luck with that, Brittany. Um, the upcoming registration deadline has not been decided. It's for the August 2022 LSAT. Uh, we'll let you know when we know. Um, also, Normally it's up, about six weeks before the test, so... You know, if the test is in early August, the the deadline would be sometime in like late June. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, there's a bit of a gap here in this uh, year's LSAT schedule. Um, keep an eye out, you know, keep practice. You should be practicing hard for that test. I mean, if you're especially if you're trying to go to law school this or uh, fall of 2023, you need to get on it. And, uh, you know, to try to have your applications done in September of 2022, ideally, yep. and uh, in a perfect world. And so that August test should be of great interest to you. And so, yeah, you should be working hard uh, a little bit every day and keep an eye out for that sometime in June probably is when that registration deadline would normally be. Absolutely. Okay. Um, also coming up in May, May 21st, Saturday, that's a Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. We are going to have a class with Rachel Gezerse. She's the author of the Law Career Playbook, How to Get a Job, a Law Job You Actually Like. The course that she'll be or the workshop she'll be presenting is How to Get a Law Job You Love. You can register for that at lsat.link forward slash Rachel. It's free. So all you need is a demon free account. Again, that's lset.link forward slash Rachel. Also come to Nathan's study group. That's happening every other Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Again, all you need is an LSAT demon free account. Today on the show, well, we had Derek uh, Brainerd from, he's a financial counselor, I guess you could say, from Access Lex. Yeah, um, he's National Director of Financial Education at Access Lex. It sounds like mostly what he does is talk to people who are borrowing insane amounts of money to go to law school. And he talks about the realities of, you know, like, should you take advantage of these forbearance programs? Should you borrow every dollar that the school is letting you borrow uh, are you are you going to go down the income based repayment plan uh, and loan forgiveness plan? He he really I mean, I thought it was pretty insightful because he ultimately talks about two main paths, right? There's the big law path, which involves actually paying back your loans. And then there's the income based repayment, accumulate mountains of debt for 10 years or 25 years and yeah. then eventually get these loans repaid, which might be a taxable event at the end. Not yeah. not the. Not the public service one. That's that. That's ten years, and it's not a taxable event. But the other one that he was talking about sounds scary as shit because that one is like, oh yeah, the the federal government just uh, forgave one hundred fifty grand, and you now have a hundred fifty thousand dollar tax bill, yeah. <laughs> or like it's a ta it's like taxable income to you, which means you owe fifty grand to the IRS. Um, 
what the heck? What do you do then? If you're someone who is in that position in the first place, you work out a payment plan with the IRS. You're <sighs> the IR. You now are indebted to. We're the just IRS. transferring the debt from one <laughs> well, agency it, to another. The debt did get significantly it got reduced, down, right? I mean, you yeah. owe a third of what you owed, but a third of a lot is still a lot. And uh, you know, like, can you imagine you're like have this debt for your whole life? And you're just waiting for it to get repaid and then it or forgiven and then it gets forgiven. And then now you still owe like uh, just f like significant five figures money now that you owe to the IRS and you have a payment plan. And who knows, they're like garnishing your wages or whatever, oh, paying sweet. extra to the tax man every year to, to try to get out from under your student loan debt, which now has been it's being serviced essentially by the IRS. I mean, Oh, God. Anyway, um, really appreciate Derek for coming on the show. The interview felt slightly hostile at times because Ben and I are so committed to the idea that you just shouldn't borrow at all. But we appreciated Derek's time and and uh, thought that there was stuff that the listeners can learn. Uh, we yeah. Before we get into that, we're, we, we've got some LSAT content for you. We've got a pearls versus turds about cause and effect. Uh, some really bad, bizarre advice yeah weird advice out there in one of the major lsat books and then um we did a, a logical reasoning question cool uh really quick we do want to solicit teachers right for logic games and really any teacher right for any class yeah um so it we've got fairly high standards we you, we need a 99th percentile score report we need to see an example of you teaching a question or a game. We really only hire our listeners and former students. Um, we're really fortunate to have a super great pool of people to hire from. Uh, I should shout out that the people who come to work for us end up having like really good outcomes, like really good outcomes. We're losing a bunch of teachers this year because like three of them are going off to Yale and another three of them are going off to Harvard. And uh, others go on full tuition scholarships to some of the best law schools in the country. So uh, if you would like to join the team, uh, we think we've got like the very best team there is. And uh, you can e just email the show is fine. Help at thinkinglsat.com uh, if you would like to be considered as part of our teaching core. It's a freelance remote job, real flexible, uh, essentially make your own hours and you know, we, we just want people who already are kind of part of the family and have, uh, you know, if, if you used us for prep and you listen to the show uh, and you use the demon, maybe um, all those things are really good points in your favor. So put that in your email along with uh, your score report, 99th percentile score report and uh, a short video of you doing a little bit of teaching and we'll take it from there. Perfect. By the way, we've been getting some pre-law societies to list the LSAT demon on their websites. For any pre-law society that does that, we are giving anyone in that group 25% off the first month of the demon. Again, any plan. So if you're at a university and you don't even know whether or not you have a pre-law society or not, try to figure that out and then have them reach out to us. Just have them email help, or you could go ahead and email us at help at lsatdemon.com and we can try to help you get you know our program listed on their website just along with all the other programs that they have like Kaplan and whatever 
And we will give anyone in that group, including you, 25% off the first month. So you can find more information about this at lsat.link forward slash prelaw. Again, that's lsat.link forward slash prelaw. Yeah. And then email help at lsatdemon.com if you want to cash in on the discount. All right. On to the show. We have a pearls versus turds. For those of you who have just joined us, pearls versus turds is where we take some received wisdom out on the out on the web or in the world somewhere, and we assess whether it's a pearl worthy of your uh, incorporation into your life or a turd, something you should flush yep. down the toilet. The scoreboard right now is seventeen pearls, fifty eight turds, and twenty four ties. There's a lot of shit out there. This one's from Faye. You got it? Yep. It says, recently I encountered a question that concerned the correlation versus causation flaw, and I was reminded of something I read from the PowerScore book. It goes, when an LSAT speaker, I'm quoting now from uh, Faye, who's quoting from apparently a PowerScore book. Quote of a quote. Quote of a quote. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it says, when an LSAT speaker concludes that one occurrence caused another, that speaker also assumes that the stated cause is the only possible cause of the effect, and that consequently, the stated cause will always produce the effect. Whoa, you know what's funny about reading this? I remember reading that in the PowerScore book, like 15, what, maybe, I can't even do my math right now, so many years ago. Yeah. And being like... like paused by this and being like, wait a sec, what really? yep. is that what that's saying? Is, it, is that yep. what the LSAT is thinking? <laughs> Longtime <laughs> listeners might recall that I started my uh, LSAT days as a power score teacher. They hired me over yeah. the telephone and um, I was instantly their power, their teacher in, um, yeah. in San Francisco teaching classes. And I do remember this from the book and, you know, it was sort of like just, well, this is gospel. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, look, they capitalize the only, right? The only. Yeah. Um, this is bullshit. This is this is just it's actually an LSAT flaw. It's that weird. Ca- it's multiple LSAT flaws in one because yeah. causality does not have to be 100 percent in either direction. Um, cigarette smoking causes cancer. Even though cigarette smoking doesn't always cause cancer, even though all kinds of other stuff do cause cause cancer. So, you know, like you could point to a four year old with leukemia and like she didn't smoke, but she got cancer. Yeah. And you could point to an 84 year old who smoked every day of his life and does smoke and didn't get cancer. Nonetheless, that does not in any way weaken the idea that smoking causes cancer. Because causality does not have to be one-to-one like that. You can absolutely have the cause without the effect, and you can have the effect without the cause. And it would be a flaw to say, you know, if I was the speaker here in this Mm -hmm. example, and I said cigarette smoking causes cancer, I am absolutely not guilty of claiming that cigarette smoking is the only cause of the effect, or that the stated cause will always produce the effect. I mean, this is so strongly and wrongly written. <laughs> yeah, it's wrong multiple that, ways. You know, when people ask about power score, sorry, we don't usually 
well, I guess I don't know how often we talk about competitors or not, but when people ask me about power score, I tend to think, well, they're overly technical. They like to trademark their terminology, which is odd and, and kind of funny, but you know, who cares? It's just a, whatever a thing that they do, but it doesn't necessarily affect their teaching per se. Right. And being overly technical or obsessed with long lists of words that introduce conclusions is kind of annoying, but again, not technically wrong necessarily, but this is flat out wrong. So it's making me reassess how I think about their books. Yeah. At the very this least, is this really is something bad. that was wrong in one of their books and is now, I mean, outdated. At, at, at Hopefully it's been removed. Maybe she's re re reading an I, old book. I but... asked Faye for a date and she didn't have a date. She, she, she didn't have the book with her anymore. So she didn't have the, the date. Anyway, um, okay. Faye, it <laughs> struck Faye as uh, confusing because Faye says, I wonder if this statement is widely accepted in the LSAT taking community because common sense, or at least my common sense, tells me that a result can have multiple causes. So I don't know if this statement must be true. I would say, yes, not only can an effect have multiple causes, but furthermore, you know, look at their logic here doesn't even make sense, Ben, because it says, it assumes that the stated cause is the only possible cause of the effect and that <laughs> consequently <laughs> the stated cause will always produce the effect. But the second thing does not follow from the first. No, they're just not because, even related. <laughs> no, just because one thing is the only cause doesn't mean that it has to always cause. Does it doesn't like, oh, this is the only thing. Therefore, it happens 100 percent of the time. No. That's not no. that doesn't logically make sense. What are you talking about? And, and so bizarrely, you could have twice. You could have multiple causes that always cause the produced effect. Yeah. Punching right. me in the face always makes me angry. So does kicking me in the stomach. Different causes, right. but they Chopping always... Chopping off my head causes death. <laughs> so does pushing me off a 100-story building. That causes yeah. death. Like, 100% of the time. Things, yeah, <laughs> those things cause death 100% of the time. And still, like... <laughs> well, I think what PowerScore would say back to that, right? If this is still current teaching um it's almost like a religion if this is still a teaching of this uh you know group um they would say wait 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 we know that but the lsat speaker on the test would be assuming that but that too Bullshit. is baloney because That's the test is not that broad. dumb That's <laughs> that they would can be say like whatever they want yeah. The arguments continue to evolve. It, they don't. Yeah. They don't have to be. They don't have to be that dumb. The speaker they, doesn't have they, to be that dumb. The, the correct no. answer would always be the argument necessarily assumes that the only possible cause of the effect is that cause or whatever. It's like no. That would. Well, that's also a wrong answer a lot of times. I, I'm really mad about their consequently there because the consequently yeah. is then accusing the speaker of being. Dumb about thinking that a stated cause is the only possible cause. That's already yeah. dumb. But yeah. then furthermore, doing bad logic. Drawing from there. a dumb conclusion from that dumb. <laughs> yeah. Assumption. Like having, oh, on, a, on the LSAT, the speaker, if they're talking about cause and effect, they not only have a bad premise, but they also have a bad logical conclusion that, no, come on, bullshit. No way. Zero percent. That is a complete fail. Um, thank you, Faye, for sending this in. That is yet another turd. I will update the scoreboard. Uh, a lot of bad That's advice worse there. than a turd. That's, um, that's a double turd that deserves like two points. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's, that's really diarrhea. terrible. That's diarrhea. If you're <laughs> sick, you, you have a disease and something's uh, coming out. All right. Hey, if you have a Pearl versus Turd candidate, you can email help at thinkinglsat.com. You can also hit us up on social. We're all over the place at thinkinglsat. Uh, so go ahead and, and reach out to us there. Cool. cool. You want to do this uh, logical yeah. reasoning question? You want to read it? Yep. All right. I'll read it to you. Yep. So, uh, if you're playing along at home, uh, 73, section four, number 11, and you can pause the show, do the question yourself, and then uh, you're going to listen to Ben do it. Manager, this company's supply chain will develop significant weaknesses unless we make changes to our vendor contracts now. Okay. So we got a manager talking and the manager is saying we're going to have problems unless we make some changes to the contracts. So um, first thought, this sounds like what the manager's going to probably end up trying to prove. I don't know. I'd love to see what the manager says next, but it sounds like I'm, I'm waiting for the explanation. Why? Why is there going to be these problems? Um, okay. And I'm also guessing that maybe there are problems because the contracts are overly constrictive. They didn't foresee some problem. Okay. So Ben is making a prediction about the future of this argument here. He's mm -hmm. thinking, well, that sounds like a conclusion to me. So I'm expecting evidence. How do you know that it's going to cause the company's supply chain weaknesses unless we change our vendor contracts? Why, why would that be the case? Yeah. Second sentence says, some will argue that this problem is so far in the future that there is no need to address it today. Okay. Now we've, we've, veered off into what other people think some anticipated i guess uh counter argument to this manager's argument i'm waiting for the argument to or the manager to say that they're wrong that we knew we do need to address it today okay have you revised your uh prediction you, you thought that that first sentence was a conclusion when you read it how are you feeling about it now uh, i i still feel like well yeah, i still feel like that could be the conclusion like because the first sentence does say we we unless we make changes to our vendor contracts now. Oh, well, I guess yeah, maybe it could become the premise. And the real conclusion is we have to move now. I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And so I guess I want to point that out to people that we're we're constantly predicting and we're constantly revising our predictions. We we're going to sure. be fluid, flexible thinkers. But that doesn't mean that we have to read the whole thing before we can glean anything from this argument. We're going to be like trying to pick up as much as we can as we go. Yeah. And uh, but that does mean that we have to be kind of flexible. OK. But that is an irresponsible approach. OK, that that sounds like the conclusion. I mean, we, we were just told what some people think and this person is saying that they're wrong and that's irresponsible. So now I'm anticipating some explanation for why that's irresponsible. Okay. And again, what does the manager think is irresponsible? Waiting to fix this problem with right. the contracts. Okay. So mm -hmm. it sounds as if the manager does believe then that first sentence that the company's supply chain will develop significant weaknesses if we don't make changes to our vendor contracts now. Yeah. She seems like she's operating under the assumption that that is a fact. Some people so are arguing now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. So that has changed in your mind. You thought that that was a conclusion. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because it was a prediction, right? It's like a prediction about the future. And you're like, well, how do you know that? Yeah. And I don't know that she's going to actually explain it to us. I think that she's just going to 
I think now at this point, she's like, well, some people say we shouldn't fix it. You know, we we can wait, but I'm going to call them irresponsible. And it's like, well, whoa, you don't have enough time, right? We're already halfway through the argument. So you're not, I don't see how you're going to both prove your first sentence and prove that it's irresponsible to wait to fix the problem. Yep. Right. We've got one or two sentences. We're just going to accept that there are problems if you don't change the contracts. Now it's just a matter of when. Right. Yeah. Okay. So she continues. Just imagine if a financial planner offered the same counsel to a 30 year old client. Don't worry, Jane. Retirement is 35 years away. You don't need to save anything now. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I kind of agree that people should start saving for retirement early. I don't know if this totally different situation is applicable (laughs) here, right? That's always the problem with these analogies is it's like, yeah, okay. I might agree with the, what's being said in the analogy, but does that apply? Does that analogize over to my case? It might not. You're a teacher. I'm a teacher. Teachers love an analogy. An analogy can be a really good way to, you know, illustrate something or to to make something clear to somebody. You you use an an uh, you use some a situation that people do understand, mm-hmm. and you get them to realize like, oh well, yeah, of course that would be dumb. You can't wait <laughs> to save for retirement. You have to save for retirement while you're young. Um, <laughs> by the time you're old, it's too late, and everybody knows that. So, but then it's like. Yeah, but I thought we were talking about a supply chain, vendor contracts and a supply chain. It's like, what what does one have to do with the other? Yeah. Okay. Um, Manager concludes or uh, ends with that planner would be guilty of gross gross malpractice. Okay. (laughs) Just doubling down on the analogy. So... I don't know that that helps the analogy anymore. I already kind of agreed that delaying in that situation is bad. The question still remains, okay, well, would it be bad in our situation? Analogy arguments, if they don't provide any more information, are generally tend to be bad because you have to assume that they're applicable. Yeah, the obvious objection is always, what does one thing have to do with the other? Yep. You know, Your Honor, can I have that stricken from the record? That I, I think that counsel must be looking at the wrong notes because uh, counsel is talking about retirement planning, and I thought we were talking about supply chain management. Yeah, we we have a company where we supply things, <laughs> and um, we're not retirees or future retirees. <laughs> what what is what what is what is counsel's what what Point. is your evidence that this is relevant to our case? Like why? Are, yeah. How how are you? What are you talking about? Like why why are you? Why is this material at all? Like yeah. I don't I I don't follow. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's like that's a pretty powerful objection because the manager didn't provide any evidence that retirement planning has anything to do with supply chain management. Yeah. All right. Uh, so. Question is a little bit of a. I mean, I, I it always seems as if so, like slightly a curveball, right? Because we we're naturally objecting to these arguments, sure. and now the question turns around and goes, which one of the following most accurately expresses the overall conclusion drawn in the manager's argument? Oh man, I wasted so much time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. analyzing that argument. Well, 
first of all, that happened like instantly. It actually almost happened as we were reading that sentence, right? You're like, oh, oh you're sure. going into an analogy. Good, good. But uh, yeah, the, the main conclusion we clearly identified, we had to identify it if we're going to evaluate the argument, and that's that middle sentence, but that is an irresponsible approach. In other words, delaying and fixing the problem well into the future is an irresponsible approach. Now I'm just looking for an answer choice that says that. That's it. Yeah. Say it one more time. Like, What, what would be the perfect answer here? What are you looking the for? The perfect answer is... Not addressing the vendor contracts now would be an irresponsible approach. So what I'm doing Perfect. is I'm taking the sentence and it has the word that in it, right? And that is a pronoun, which is referring back to something that was said earlier in the argument. And I'm going back and I'm finding that thing and I'm saying, ah, doing that is irresponsible. Yeah, we're looking for waiting would be irresponsible. Wait, we, you know, we fi not fixing these contracts now not changing these contracts now would be irresponsible. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. A, some people argue that the supply chain problem is so far in the future that there is no need to address it now. Nope. This was the second sentence, and it was the opinion of some other people, not the main conclusion of this author's argument, the manager. Yeah, she came here to tell you that those people are irresponsible. Yep. B, it would be irresponsible to postpone changes to the vendor contracts just because the supply chain will not develop weaknesses for a long time. That is the answer. <laughs> Conclusion questions are easy. It's one yeah. of the types of questions where you really need to be predicting the answers. Uh, by the way, we... We're always trying to find the conclusion of every argument. So, you know, I think sometimes you you were mocking it, Ben, but people are like, well, if I would have just read the question first, then I wouldn't have had to waste all this time. It's like you didn't waste any time because if you're reading the manager's argument properly, mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out what her evidence is and what her conclusion is so you can call bullshit. So you're naturally finding her conclusion every time anyway. And then when the question just says, what's the conclusion? You're like, oh, well, that's easy. I, I was all ready to describe a flaw in this argument, which is bringing up an analogy that doesn't apply or strengthen the argument by showing that the analogy does apply or weaken the argument by showing that the analogy does not apply or describing an assumption of the argument, which is that the analogy applies, uh, you know, or describing a method of reasoning, which is saying she used an analogy. I, we're equipped to answer any of these questions. When it turns out to just be a conclusion question, we go, oh, well, she's attacking the people who want to wait on fixing this uh, vendor contract issue. Yeah. And that's what B says. So that's the answer. It's easy. Yep. C, if no changes are made to the vendor contracts, the supply chain will eventually develop significant weaknesses. Okay. Um, that's a premise, really, from the first sentence. Yeah, that was the first sentence. And, you, you know, when you had first read it, you thought that that was the conclusion. By the way... If you were trying to game the system here, you know, if you just read the question and then you just read that first sentence and you saw that it was a prediction about the future and you wanted to like save time or whatever, you might scan these answers, pick C and move on. You would have saved time. Yeah. You also would have not gotten a point for this question, which is the world's worst waste of time. D. In planning to meet its future obligations, a company should follow the same practices that are appropriate for an individual who was planning for retirement. Um, 
Okay, that's actually the assumption that we were going after, right? Um, kinda, kinda. I mean, I, mean, I don't think a, that that's a necessary assumption of the argument. It's a, it's sort of stronger than sure. So this but, might, yeah, yeah. But either way, it's not the main conclusion. It wasn't even said. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. The you know the author necessarily assumes that retirement planning is similar in some respects, or that you can learn something about supply chain management or planning to meet its future obligations by thinking about retirement planning. The, the, the argument has necessarily assumed that these two things have something to do with one another. Mm -hmm. But I am not willing to say that the argument I don't think has I was necessarily thinking assumed that... I don't know if I said necessary. I don't think I was thinking of it as a necessary assumption. It just is sort of an assumption that they might be, yeah, might yeah. be thinking yeah. as they make this argument. Yeah, the argument does kind of seem like it thinks something like that is true. Yeah. yeah. E, financial planners should advise their clients to save money for retirement only if retirement is many years away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nah, no. Well, that's the worst answer because <laughs> nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that. So, I mean, yeah. what, what the effect of E would be if someone is only five years from retirement, they they you can't advise them to save money. Yeah. Which is not that's misstating even the analogy. So that's like the very worst answer. OK, answer is B. You predicted it. That's it. Cool. Cool. Uh, next thing on the agenda is an email from Sam. You want to read it? Yeah. Hey, Ben and Nathan. I listened to the podcast last night where you mentioned you'd like to know the name of the school I referenced that offers a scholarship contingent upon not taking the LSAT. So I tried to track down the pamphlet. It's a little rippled, ripped, sorry, but I think everything is still legible. Okay. So then we have an image of the pamphlet down here. Also, this gave me an idea for something you could add to the LSAT demon a no-fly list. It could be a it could be comprised of schools that did something reprehensible, such as Cornell refraining from offering full rides, or that one Tennessee school <laughs> averaging applicants LSAT scores. If possible, oh. <laughs> you can even let students nominate and vote on schools to add to the list, providing they attach proof. Proof of wrongdoing. Yeah, well, we'll be the jury on <laughs> on these reprehensible behaviors. I don't know that these things are reprehensible. I don't think either one of those things would would put a school on the no fly list. So that's what my my objection to the and we'll get into the this thing that that Sam usefully sent in from Widener, I think might might become or actually is, I think, reprehensible, at least the way I'm interpreting interpreting it. But these two things, Cornell not offering full rides, um, that's not that's not like I'm not morally judging Cornell for that. That's just their choice in how they're going to play this game. Well, think about it this way, too. I think the most rep res reprehensible thing is where you have schools um, paying or not paying, sorry, giving huge discounts to some people and no discounts to other yeah. people. So there's a huge disparity in cost. If Cornell is not giving full rides, it's very possible that everyone is now squeezed into the center and roughly, uh, still not the same, but roughly paying similar or closer prices. That seems better <laughs> right. on some level. Yeah. 
which I don't think is actually happening at Cornell. Uh, their, full yeah. tu- their full price is 70 grand. And I uh, like, I don't, they're, they're I don't, still giving people like 60 maybe and other people nothing. So yeah, I don't yeah. think there's any like fairness going on at Cornell, but I, I would, uh, I mean, our dream law school doesn't give full tuition scholarships to be clear. No and scholarships I, this is, whatsoever. They don't accuse me of contradicting myself because I'm not. I believe but you are that, Nathan, but you are. <laughs> I believe that I believe that the scholarships merit, mer, I'm putting merit in scare quotes here. Okay. But mm-hmm. merit-based scholarships as determined by LSAT and GPA yeah. are a big part of the problem. I think that the US Department of Education guaranteeing unlimited student loans is a bigger part of the problem because yeah. that's what has really enabled law schools to just charge like just fictional <laughs> i think you said fictional earlier today <laughs> charging fictional tuitions it's like fantastical right it's like just yeah. from a fucking fantasy book or movie yeah. or something yeah. it's like Why how much does it cost to go to hogwarts yeah like a hundred billion dollars <laughs> like i it's like just not real right mm-hmm. and the the fact that because that's what has enabled tuitions to like triple inflation or whatever it's been for yeah. the past however many years and it it's because of the the a big part of the problem the bigger part of the problem i think is guaranteeing these student loans for unlimited amounts of money yeah um but a very another really big problem is these schools charging everybody a different price and the fact that they give merit-based scholarships is what tends to make them charge black and brown people more to go to their school and that's fucked up. That is not that is not a system that anybody wants, but that is the system that we have. And so now here's where people are going to think I'm contradicting myself, because I think that merit based scholarships are a huge part of the problem. And at the same time, I think that you, listener, should go to law school on a merit based scholarship or not at all. Well, absolutely. There's do you pro, do you solve the problem uh, on a, you know, on the highest level, which is you get rid of merit-based scholarships and you dramatically reduce uh, the cost of tuition. That'd be or great. You, I can't do anything about that. I mean, we I, can't do I feel that completely powerless. Yeah. yeah. So do we solve the problem on a personal level? And the way to solve the problem on a personal level is to go to law school for free. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I, I am encouraging you to take advantage of this system. Like I, I think that you, <laughs> you should, take advantage of this broken system. I do not think it's fair. You're going to be paying nothing while the people you go to law school with are going to be paying ridiculous, crazy tuition. But I want what's best for you. Yep. Like I don't care about the people who aren't. I mean, I do care actually about the people who aren't taking my advice. That's why I'm never going to stop complaining about this broken system. Nonetheless, any individual actor in this prisoner's dilemma needs to act in their own best interest. And so it is in your best interest to make sure that you're taking a full tuition scholarship to law school or as close as you can possibly get. And at yeah. Cornell, if they don't offer full rides, then I mean, okay, the best you can get is something close to a full ride, but not actually a full ride. You still should not go to Cornell unless you're getting the best deal you can possibly get at Cornell. But I don't judge Cornell for not giving full rides. In fact, I wish everybody did that same exact thing and didn't give full rides. Yeah. Because to be clear, again, I mean, I've already said this, but I, I don't think people really understand it 
uh, well enough. All the full ride is is a discount. And law schools are just giving some people a 100% discount while charging other people the full fake tuition. Yep. You know, and and it's it's become a ridiculous, just like insane amount of money. You'll hear later in the show a previously recorded interview with Derek Brainerd from Access Lex, and he proposes the idea of a a rule where you don't borrow more money than your first year uh, salary. Yep. As a lawyer. Yep. But the only people who can possibly uh, live within that rule yep. are people who are going to go straight into big law. Like, it's just not possible for normal people. It's just not possible. Yeah, you get. Well, that's assuming, too, that you didn't take if out more loans price. than. Yeah, you didn't take out more loans than the tuition, which a lot of people do because you got to pay for cost of living. So, oh, so you're saying even then, like, even if you are going to go you're probably going to violate that rule. Live. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, no. The the literally the only way to uh, to follow that rule would be one: you do have to make a lot of money when you get out of law school, and you have to take one of these tuition scholarships. Yep, and you shouldn't have any or very little debt from undergrad, and like, not have pre existing debt. Yeah, because if you're coming into this, if you're if like you know, let's say an average student doing average things, right? You you come into it with forty fifty thousand dollars of debt from undergrad. Some people are listening going, I wish I only had forty, fifty thousand dollars from undergrad. Let's yeah. say you got forty or fifty grand from undergrad that you still owe. And now you're gonna go to law school and you get one of these half-assed scholarships. Like they yep. give, you know, they 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 look like they're blessing you with twenty-five thousand dollars a year, but the reality is you're gonna turn around and pay them twenty-five thousand dollars a year because their tuition is fifty. Well, now you're borrowing 25 a year times three plus living expenses, plus interest, plus you've got previous debt from undergrad. You're going to graduate with 150, 100 and whatever. I mean, it's like obviously six figures of debt. Yep. I mean, I think Derek said that the average law school debt is like 160,000 or something like that when people get out. Yeah. And the 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 average average salary for lawyers is 100 grand but it's a bimodal distribution so the only people who really reliably make over six figures when they start are big law lawyers and they they might make 200 grand but see that's the irony of this whole thing is that like in the name of justice and diversity and access and whatever and these schools are constantly pumping up their like well you know there's just not enough lawyers to come do what was the one we had last week about the like not enough people in oh, Maryland yeah, who Maryland. need their <laughs> civil they need help in their landlord tenant disputes or whatever. Yeah. You're not fucking making $150,000 a year doing that shit. No, you're scraping by. You might have a second job. And so, yeah, I mean like these people are borrowing wild multiples of their first year starting salary on a JD. And you'll hear in the interview later, but I mean, Derek essentially acknowledges that a huge chunk of these people are like intentionally not going to pay off their debt. Like that's their, that they're, that's actually their plan. Yeah. Is like, well, debt forgiveness, that's it. Like if I don't get this debt forgiven, I, I just, there's no, I'm not my, my aspirations. I want to help people. I want to, I want to do law in the, like, I'm, I'm like going to do law for good. 
you can't help people if you're unable to stand on your own two feet because you're drowning in debt. Well, but see, these people are going to just get it all magically forgiven <laughs> down the road. <laughs> Don't worry, Ben, we're going to fix all the problems that already that exist in the student loan world. You know? Yeah. Good luck. It's only going to get worse, honestly. Um, I think, I mean, there's so many problems, right? The country can easily get sidetracked by something else. War in another country. It's like, okay, we we don't have time to deal with the student loan. A a global pandemic. Yeah. The next global pandemic after that. Climate crisis, whatever. Financial crisis. Oh, looming heat death of (laughs) the planet. Um, like a hundred other priorities. Yeah. Not to mention the giant elections happening every two or four years and just completely different leadership taking over. And, you know, you're trying to predict the future. Good (laughs) luck. Good luck with that. That's why you got to be out of debt. So let's talk really quickly about this other problem. The Tennessee school averaging law school applicants LSAT scores. <laughs> that doesn't put them on a no fly list. That puts them on a like they're dumb, dumb. list. But yeah, they're they're not playing the game right. Um, if you want to apply there, and maybe you have a high average LSAT score, <laughs> maybe you only took it once. And but anyways, um, let's read this this flyer. You got it? Yeah, yeah, I got it. So this flyer that Sam, I can imagine Sam like smuggling this out of the meeting or whatever it was, you know, it's like, it's an artifact of war or something. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a, a document um, that was brought to our attention by our spy in the field, Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's about Widener Legal Scholars Program. You ready to hear about yeah. this? Yep. Under the Widener Legal Scholars Program, Widener undergraduate students in any major qualify for admission to Delaware Law School. And then we got bold italics. That's how you know it's good. (laughs) Without having to take the LSAT. So you, Ben, can get admission to Delaware Law School without having to take the LSAT. Provided, one, you submit a completed law school application to Delaware Law. Okay, Okay. you have to apply. No shit. (laughs) Two, you have to score at or above the 85th percentile on the SAT and have not taken the LSAT parentheses. Applicants who have taken an LSAT are not eligible for consideration under this program. So they've said that three times without having taken the LSAT. Well, not taking the LSAT, not so (laughs) not taking. Here's the the thing. Well, this is where we see how scandalous this trick is yep in the first instance they they portrayed it as a benefit to you yeah you get admission to delaware law school without having to take this you don't onerous have to LSAT. yeah but if you okay. did we don't talk about what would happen there we just say well, you don't need this you don't have oh you don't have to take it yeah. and then when we get into the requirements of the program you literally cannot have taken it yeah Yep. Why, Ben? Why might a law school decide to make that decision? Hmm. Well, um, if you have a good LSAT score, you might go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you have a bad LSAT, they're going to have to report that on their 509. Yep. 
So they want you to come into this program under that exception of like, didn't take the LSAT, no LSAT reported. But why, Ben, are they requiring an 85th percentile SAT score? They want to know that you're smart. <laughs> they want to know that you can fucking cut it. Yeah. So they're like, we want people who can cut it, but also are lazy enough that they're going to not take the LSAT. Uninformed enough. Right. No, yeah, we want, we want suckers, yep. essentially. Okay, then the requirements continue. We want, you also have to maintain a cumulative GPA of 3.5 or higher, which what's the average GPA at this school? I mean, many law schools, the, the curve is built around a B plus, which is 3.3. Yeah. So this, this might be a, a, a really like conditional, it's, this is now conditional admission where it's like, they'll just kick you out. <laughs> You're, you're going to be removed from the school if you have more than if you have less than a 3.5, which could be really hard. It says 3.5 or a GPA in the top 10 percent of the class. Oh, wait, maybe that's undergrad. I was wondering. that. Oh, that's undergrad. Sorry, my yeah. bad. That's undergrad. That That's my bad. That's 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 got to be an undergrad requirement. So it's like, well, you're an undergrad with a 3.5 or top 10 percent and you haven't taken the LSAT. You also have to satisfy all law school admissions requirements relating to character and fitness. Also, students admitted to the Delaware Law School under this program for the 2021-2022 academic year will qualify for an annual scholarship in the amount of $38,000 a year, renewable for each succeeding year of full-time law school for a total scholarship award of $114,000. That sounds great. Hey... <laughs> Really quick, I want to go back to the 3.5 GPA. Yes. Their 75th percentile for full-time students is 3.52. For part-time students, it's 3.42. And um, they actually have a pretty big part-time program. But the point is, is that 3.5 or higher is going to, for most applicants who do this, be above their 75th percentile. So it just makes bare that they're pulling up their numbers by getting... Competitive applicants can now not compete at other schools because they lack an LSAT. Yeah, but their 50th percentile LSAT is 150. Like, this is a shitty school. Yeah. So they know it, that it, anyone who's <laughs> going to get like a one, you know, if you have this higher GPA, you're probably going to have a higher LSAT score and you are going somewhere else. You're not going Well, there. also, no, I mean, it's not even just the GPA. You have to have an 85th percentile SAT score. Whoa. Yeah, that's true. People who kill the SAT also kill the LSAT. Like, let's let's be real here. Like, if you're badass at the S, I mean, that's not badass at the SAT, but it's good enough. Like, if you're 85th percentile SAT, then you're probably going to score something significantly above 150 on the LSAT, at least if you do any kind of prep. And so, like, this is an applicant who would get better offers elsewhere. And th this is an example of um this is delaware law school it's called widener university okay you ready for the cost the, for tuition yep tuition is well you want to guess what's the tuition at Widener? i looked up the 509 ah okay wait it's not on the 509 oh i haven't looked down that far well it's per credit <laughs> is on the 509 yeah i can infer yeah what's 30 times 1700 
55,000. Yeah. Yep. $57,000 is on their website for the fall <laughs> semester or fall 2022 year. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's now, now we see plainly what the game is here. They want somebody who could do well on the LSAT, but they don't want you to take the LSAT because they don't want you to be able to apply to any other law school. They want you instead to come to their shitty law school. They are going to give you a scammership. They're going to give you $38,000, but the tuition is $57,000. So you're going to still pay $19,000 plus fees or whatever. Plus living expenses, plus whatever. So they're going to soak you for 60 grand. You're going to foreclose all of your other opportunities to go to any number of way better better law law schools schools for free. (laughs) This is a, this is an example of a school poaching their own undergrads. Like, well, we've already ripped you off for part of your undergraduate degree. And now we want to just continue to rip you off. You know, we want to, this is, they're, they're like keeping some of their students on the hook for a little bit longer so that they can sell you. It's still overpriced at $19,000 a year, you know, for this just (laughs) they're ranked 190th in the country. But, you know, they, again, like their 75th percentile LSAT is 152. Like what, what are these people doing when they get out of law school? I don't know. Yeah, this this would be on my no fly list. Like this would be you don't want to be at a law school where the type where this type of shit is happening. OK, there we go. School number one on the no fly. Yeah. Widener. Widener. Yeah. Well, and and maybe if I had to put up together a list right now, I would take the bottom 50 schools and just whoosh, all of them. Boom. We don't need that many law schools. Bye. Yeah, you could do worse. I I bet you would at that point kill uh, Rachel's um, alma mater. Is Golden Gate in the bottom? Or sorry, uh, is Southwestern, Southwestern in the bottom? Maybe. But even if it worked for some people, yep. I'm not sure it worked for. Uh, it's working for most people. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what, what we're talking about. Rachel Gezer say, um, who's teaching a class uh, for us, a free class coming up. Might as well shout that out right now. That class is called How to Get a Law Job You Love. She's a professor at USC, and she went to Southwestern Law School, one of these schools that Ben wants to kill. Anyway, that's Saturday, May 21st, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. And uh, you can go to lsat.link slash Rachel if you want to sign up for that free uh, networking class on how to get a law job. The only value these schools provide is that they offer free full tuition scholarships. That's their only redeeming quality. But even then, for every full tuition scholarship, they're offering, you know, they're charging full freight to a bunch of other people. I I just don't know why our country has uh, 150 plus law schools. Painting with a very broad brush here. And I, you know, I have to acknowledge that there are successful attorneys that come out of every single one of these schools. Um, but. I, yeah, you, you definitely should not pay tuition at any of these schools. And if everybody took that advice and nobody paid tuition at any of these schools, then these schools would not exist. So, um, to that and yeah, I, these schools should not exist. (laughs) You should not support any of these schools. You should not pay these schools a dime of tuition. And if you do the Widener legal scholars program, you'll be paying them. Yeah. 
Um, 60. 190,000 dimes per year. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot more than I would recommend. Hey. Thanks, um, Sam, for sending yeah. that in. Today we have Derek Brainerd, National Director of Financial Education at Access Lex. Uh, Derek offers tips around financially preparing for graduation and getting ahead of expenses. You can also, I guess, give students questions to ask themselves, I guess, and, and tools that they should be using to make informed financial decisions as they plow ahead on this journey, right? This uh, educational journey. We maybe have we could questions. start with, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was hoping that maybe we could just kind of start like real back to basics. Uh, Derek, can you just explain what Access Lex even is? I'm sure that many of our listeners have never heard of Access Lex. Absolutely. So first, thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. Um, talking about this really timely. It's kind of a hot topic right now, right? Student loans and student loan management and repayment. Um, but yeah, Access Lex Institute, we're a nonprofit organization. And we're really dedicated to increasing the access, affordability, and value of a legal education uh, for all students. And we do that through a number of, of means. Um, the program that I am most closely kind of tied into managing and, and working in on a day-to-day -day basis is what we call Max by Access Lex. And this is a free program for our member law schools that um, is actually utilized in the vast majority of, of, of ABA accredited law schools in the country currently. And it's a personal finance program for law students. Um, several years ago, we, we interviewed about 5,000 law students and and administrators and ask them, what do you want to know about money? What do you need to know more about financial management? And as you can imagine, the answers kind of spanned all the way from basic student loan um, questions and management and repayment to budgeting for law school, how to manage uh, student loan refunds. But then we talk to people every day about investing, about insurance, about credit management, really anything financial is where we come in to help students. So we do that through the Max by Access Lex program. And that's that's one of the just one of the offerings that we have in what we call the education network at Access Lex. The URL is askedna.accesslex.org. So um you know that's a very high level overview. Uh, Access Lex Institute Institute definitely has its uh you know plays a role in in research um in um, student loan policy in terms of advocating for good student loan policy for law students, um, as well as our financial capability resources that we offer. We also reach out to pre-law students through Max Pre-Law too. So we like to say we we help out in everything from admission to admission. That's that's kind of what we say. What kind of help do you have for pre-law students? Yeah, so in that same education network at Access Lex, we call it Ask Edna um, for short, askedna.accesslex.org, there is a platform called Max Pre-Law. And in that platform, we have lessons, we have events, webinars, all about either uh, choosing law school, applying to law school, paying for law school, and building your law school budget. But in addition to that, we also have some pretty 
robust tools for pre-law students to use in the law school decision. One of them is um, Explore JD that you can access through that same that same network. And that's where we actually compile a lot of the uh, 509 data and curate it and put it into a really nice tool online that students, uh, aspiring law students can go and answer a bunch of questions about what they're looking for in a law school. They can see, you know, is what's most important to you kind of rank their priorities in their law school search. And from there, the, um, the tool will recommend kind of here's 10 law schools to check out as you're doing your comparisons. And it gives a nice comparison, um, a comparison function at the end of the tool as well. So students can access that through Explore, um, through Ask Edna, or they can get it to it directly at explorejd.org. And that's X-P-L-O-R-E-J-D.org. Derek, when you talk about, you know, putting in all this information and, and then suggesting law schools to students, I guess what I keep thinking in the back of my head is that most law schools are the same, right? On some level because of these ABA requirements that, you know, you have to t teach these certain classes your first year. And so I'm wondering outside of cost and location, what other factors are you uh, wanting to know, like what, what would weigh someone to go to one school versus another? Sure. So I think a lot of it comes down to how much they weigh, um, average, you said cost and location are huge, right? But, the, but, but one of the, some of the elements that that tool, um, also incorporates is like bar passage and job outcomes, job placement. And these are things that, you know, we're trying to help pre-law students get more informed about, more educated about, and mm. so they can think more about the return on their investment. I think the cost and location are the things that most people kind of gravitate to when they're looking at school choice, but we also incorporate elements into this tool like diversity, like um, like classroom size, like walkability, like does it matter to you that you can walk to the school, to and from campus from where you live, um, as well as, you know, like, as I said, job outcomes, bar passage, um, so, there, you know, we take a little bit of a deeper dive and part of the value of the tool is to help aspiring law students understand there's more to the decision than just cost and location, which are huge. Um, so in that way, it's kind of an educational tool as well. And at the end, they can look at any school they want. <laughs> the tool kind of uh, runs their answers and their priorities through an algorithm, recommends a handful of schools for them to compare, but they can always go back. And if they have a specific school they want to actually look into the details on, they can do that too. Okay. So in anticipation of you coming on this show, we um, asked our listeners to write in some questions. We got one from Sam here. Cool. Um, is this Sam? Is this right? Am I looking at the right yeah. place, Nathan? Yeah. Okay. Yep. It says, good morning. Do you have any tips for non K through JD students specifically in regard to the expiring grace period during the gap year that causes undergrad loans to start accruing interest? I'm about to graduate from undergrad. So I was wondering if there was some way to extend that grace period until I begin law school. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, just for the context of um, the listeners, obviously, when you borrow federal student loans, there's a six month grace period on those federal student loans. If you take a, you know, if there's a, if there's a gap between undergrad and law school more than that, then you go into repayment on the undergrad loans. That's just, that's just how that works. So is there a way to extend that? Uh, there is, you know, if you call your servicer and you ask them for a, for a, 
uh, forbearance, you can certainly do that, and they can give those to you at their discretion. So you could you could ask for that um, up until you started law school. Uh, but <laughs> additionally, there's another option um, that may be more beneficial to you in the long run, and that's applying for income-driven repayment on those undergraduate loans at the end of the grace period. Um, Income-driven repayment is one of those systems that's really being looked at right now um, to help borrowers, you know, achieve longer-term discharge or forgiveness, and in the short term, um, re just payment relief month to month. It's uh, it's a series of repayment plans, um, re like revised pays you earn, pays you earn, income contingent repayment, and income-based repayment. These are all different names for what we call income-driven repayment, and they look at your actual adjusted gross income and set your monthly payments. You, you certify your income with your servicer. So in this case, for somebody that's graduated undergrad and they are uh, maybe working and or not working uh, about six to eight weeks before they go into repayment on their undergrad loans at the, um, after graduation, they can fill out an income-driven repayment certification form at studentaid.gov. Their servicer can see how much are you making or how much did you make um, based on your last tax return. They can set your payments for the next 12 months as low as $0 a month on that income-driven repayment. And you say, okay, well, that seems like more work. Why wouldn't you just call and ask for a forbearance, right? And the answer is um, that income-driven repayment if you're on these plans for a cumulatively long enough time, 20 to 25 years, you can actually receive discharge on whatever's on your remaining balance. Uh, so that's one reason to get the clock going while you can. And then sure, they'll go back into in-school deferment when you go to law school. Um, so you'll still have that time um, that you won't have to make I suppose, payments. I, sorry to interrupt you, but I suppose no problem. we should acknowledge at that juncture that um, the servicer of the loan does have to uh, keep track of and acknowledge that you have made those payments over time, which has been in the news recently that some of the servicers were completely not keeping track of those payments. <laughs> that, that's very good to acknowledge. And that is one of those things that has definitely come out the past few weeks. Um, you know, Department of Ed said that they are they're revamping the system you know, the mechanism by which servicers are helping borrowers keep track of those 20 to 25 years of payments. Because as you said, Nathan, like historically, it's just really hasn't been happening to any sort of um, structured or comprehensive extent. So that is one of the reforms that's currently underway. And in the meantime, they're doing uh, an account adjustment for people who have done this in the past. They're saying, okay, so let's say in the past, you did one of these forbearances. You called a servicer. You were doing the right thing. You didn't want to just not pay your loans. You call your servicer. You're proactively communicating about that. Um, if you were in a forbearance for 12 months or more or 36 months or more, those are the two, again, the two tiers that they give in this guidance they just put out, they're going to actually go ahead and count that time towards this cumulative 20 to 25-year discharge on income-driven repayment forgiveness. So there, I think in a lot of ways, they're seeing what um, what could be done better in the system. This is just with income-driven repayment on that side. You know, we can talk more about public service loan forgiveness, which is an additional program where people, you know, achieve forgiveness when by using these income-driven repayment plans after 10 years working for a qualified employer. There's a lot of things that the administration is doing right now to to try to make these systems work more smoothly and more streamlined for borrowers. And, you know, it's going to translate to, it already has translated to 
hundreds of thousands of borrowers getting some help and getting some relief in their student loans before we go back into repayment um, at this, as of this moment um, comes September. <laughs> we'll see if that changes. Stepping back here for a half second, Derek, I have to say, listening to all this kind of makes me sick. <laughs> like sure. when you said 20 to 25 years so that you can get then a, a loan forgiveness, right? I'm like, well, gee, that's <laughs> a third of my life is is under debt and then what's the reward at the end well now you you're out of debt right no you you haven't saved for retirement presumably um and and so i guess one thing the tagline of this show right is don't pay for law school we don't want people to pay for law school so i'm i guess what i'm kind of wondering is what advice can we give our listeners i think going ahead i don't want them to pay except in the most unusual circumstances. And looking at the past, I think this is where maybe your advice can be most effective is like, okay, well, what can we do now that you already have a loan? Um, but I think going forward, I would say, please, please don't, don't take out any more debt. I'm curious, I guess. Okay. So I have two questions. One is what, what can we do for people who already have debt and how can they deal with it? And two, if you agree that most people can, can figure out a way to not go to law school for free, which is what we, we believe. <laughs> well, I guess, no, you don't have to accept that. Well, are, are you, um, I mean, that's what we think, but it sounds like you're encouraging people to go to law school and take on debt. What, what is the debt cap that you tend to recommend to people? Oh yeah. No, that's a great question. And I think to further clarify, it's definitely not an encouragement to go to law school and take on debt. Um, No, no, no. It's actually more, I think the point of the tool and the resources and services is to help inform people so that they can trend toward what you're talking about, a world in which we can make decisions where we borrow less and we're able to get through legal education with the least amount necessary in borrowing. So we're definitely not encouraging, um, but we are just trying to formulate tools and services to help you know, in the the financial reality that many people live in. Um, to your question, you know, your first question about, you know, what do you do if you if you already have have student loans? And I mm-hmm. think there are there are stage gates in the legal education process that you can think about this, and you can pivot or you can make decisions that will help mitigate future borrowing, and then at the end help you understand how much you're actually going to be paying out of pocket for the student loan debt you have. So in the short term, if you're in school and you already are thinking, I'm taking student loans or I've taken a student loan, let's just say you're, you're going, you're, you're in one year, you're, you know, between your 1L and 2L year and you say, okay, I, I borrowed for my 1L year. I would definitely encourage you to use whatever tools or resources are at your disposal. Just do a, a quick inventory of how did that year go? Did you borrow more than you needed? Do you have money left over? Because if so, there's no reason you can't turn around and just pay that off towards your student loans, right? If you if you do this analysis close enough to when you actually got the loans dispersed, you can actually return the money to the federal government through your financial aid office. So that actual cost of living analysis is huge. And I highly encourage people to do that. Geez, do it every semester. Say, what's changed? Do I need to take the full student loan refund to to make this work? Or can I borrow $100 less a month, $200, $300? Because that adds up, right? If you can just make it, and I always, um, when we do our one-on-one financial coaching for law students, we always talk about, you know, what is the 
you know, making that student loan, loan refund last for the full 12 months instead of a nine month academic year? What are the big decisions you can make in shelter, food, transportation that can move the needle on those items? If you focus on the big ticket items and stress a little bit less about those things that help you get through the day, day to day, you know, a cup of coffee here and there, <laughs> but think more about, hey, what about a roommate for my living situation? What about, um, you know, how am I getting to and from school and my meal planning and doing that sort of stuff? I know it sounds like it's not, it's not overly complicated, but if these things translate to being able to borrow um, hundreds of dollars less or, uh, or thousands of dollars less over the course of your legal education, that's money that isn't going to be parlayed into repayment plan after graduation that you have to be paying for 10 to 25 years, right? And I, I used to be a, a licensed financial advisor and one of the things I always used to talk about, and this was before I got into higher education, one of the things I always used to talk to folks about was their return on investment. If somebody wanted to come to me and ask, you know, I want to buy this mutual fund or they want to buy this stock or whatever it was, I would say, well, well, let's talk about how much it is, but also why you're buying it. What are you hoping to get out of it in the long run? What is the investment for, right? And that's another conversation that we have with with aspiring law students and law students is how are you determining what your return on investment is going to be? Right. And that's something that can take place at every step of the of the way once a year throughout law school. How much have you borrowed? What's your total investment look like? We also lump in like LSAT fees and bar exam costs at the end into that total investment. We say what's changed this past year that has either increased your total investment or decreased it. If you could decrease your borrowing through scholarships, grants, all that good stuff. Um, so we look at that and then we also help them look at what's the potential return. What, you know, what sector are you going into? If we look at like the NALP, NALP.org um, salary and compensation data, and we say, what's your starting salary? Potentially, a lot of students might already know um, a general bar, ballpark. And then how are you factoring in your, your benefits packages and your just general um, satisfaction with your trajectory? You know, we want to put, put some quantification to that so we can say, okay, now you know you're borrowing um, X number of dollars, your your return is going to be this after graduation. Now you can see your return on investment is whatever it is, 50% of your total law school investment, you're going to get that back in salary and benefits your first year, 60%, 70%, 80%, or 20%. And is there a right number? Is there like a magic number that says this is the number that you should borrow? Not really. <laughs> it comes down to other life goals and their uh, and their career trajectory. Obviously, the higher the return on the investment, the better, right? So if they're getting 100%, you know, you've probably heard that before. If you can keep your borrowing to your first year's salary, then that's been this general threshold, this general guideline that's been thrown around kind of the higher education um, world for the past several years. Um, you know, I don't know if that's the right answer. All I know is that the higher return on investment that a student can project um, the more informed their decisions can be along the way. I wish there was like a threshold that we could put out there, but that's that's the education piece that we're trying to help people with. Uh, it it just, you know, it, forgive me, but it just seems a bit like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic when if we're talking about somebody who is borrowing six figures for a JD, you know, shaving off a hundred dollars a month or whatever. I'm not saying it's nothing. Every little bit counts. Sure. But the, 
it seems to me that the big counseling moment is before they make the decision to start paying $50,000 a year of law school tuition. You don't, you don't dent, <laughs> you're not denting that $50,000. I don't care how frugal you are with your grocery bill. You're not, you're not doing anything significant compared to the $50,000 of tuition, $25,000 a semester that you're just pumping straight into your loan balance. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a, I think what people have to, or people are trying to understand is this is such a large amount of money that it's almost um, abstract. It's almost like $150,000, $200,000. Yeah. I wouldn't, like I wouldn't a, say a, it's, it's almost a, abstract. It's Sorry, abstract. Derek. It's like, it, yeah, it, yeah. It is, it, and there's it, a term for this. It's financial abstraction, right? And people... There is, yep. I mean, you see it when you go from paying with uh, debit cards to credit cards. You have a 15% abstraction and people pay 15% more. And then you see that when you go from a credit card to like these, you know, when you go to a theme park and they give you like a a tool to charge you, the, what they're doing the is magic they're, yeah they're separating you from the actual money right sure. and uh, a loan is a piece of paper that has numbers on it and to to me it seems like something that's in the future and when for young people right the future is even farther away and it's just it's 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 funny money it's it you could just be holding like monopoly money in front of them and they would say yeah yeah okay sure like I get that and I get to actually monopoly money would probably be more concrete <laughs> than the loan documents that they get, which are extraordinarily long. Like I am, I am afraid of what these folks are signing up for. I, we, we are helping people go to law school. So we're not saying, you know, it can't be done. I just, the cost of education, what's well, three times higher than it was in, the eighties adjusted for inflation, like the prices are, are fake and the payments are through loans that are abstract and unreal. So anyways, I, you were saying they're, they're abstract. <laughs> yeah, no, they are right. And they are. And it's outside. And I, and you know, my, my friend, um, one of my friends, Adam Carroll talks a lot about this financial abstraction and, you know, this monopoly money and how do you make it more real? And I think Nathan, you're right. I think, the more that we can have folks look at this potential borrowing versus potential outcomes in the beginning, it's going to lead to much more informed decisions. I mean, if you look at, I mean, tuition and fees across the board in 2020, um, 2021, we're, we're down a little bit, but compared to what? It's like you said, it's like you said, Ben, if you look at the inflation um, over the past few decades, and then you see how um, salaries and compensation haven't haven't kept pace, right? Mm -hmm. um, it creates this system where we have to treat the symptom instead of the root cause. And that is where um, then we start to develop symptom. That's where we start to develop systems like income-driven repayment, like programs like public service loan forgiveness. Um, you know, I don't know what the answer is to, to tuition and fees, and fees inflation. Um, I think we're, you know, these programs exist like income driven repayment and public service loan forgiveness on the back end to try to make it so that we still have, you know, public defenders and we still have people that can go out and, and do these jobs that are so important and they have to get through law school somehow. So, you know, I wish we could go back to the, you know, to the, to the starting point of how, how are these, um, how are these costs set and, you know, you have to hit that with obviously policies, with um, 
with legislation um, a little bit, but I think, you know, we're trying to use the tools and services we have at our disposal now to help people make informed decisions up front so that they can, they can know going into it with their eyes wide open. This is a large, this is a large investment akin to a mortgage. And on the back end, here's our repayment options. Um, you know, so thankfully, yeah. you know, the income driven repayment plans give them some flexibility to go into these careers. I, I'm sorry, Derek. I have yeah. to say, I'm really so we've talked about this income repayment plan stuff, and I think that your, you know, if someone is in this situation, they're already in it, and they have these loans, then making them aware of these solutions seems, or you know, attempted solutions seems like a like a good idea. But I, I still feel like the income based repayment plan is like an EMT showing up to a car accident, right? It's like, okay, we're going to make it better, but I would prefer that they avoid the car accident in the first place. I, I guess, and so my fear yeah, is that when support. you- you're putting somebody, you're, it's life support. Yeah, it's life support. Yeah, it's on the respirator at well, that Well, that's point. what I was saying by treating the symptom instead of the actual accident, right? And you're in treat, you know, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I- I guess going to law is, school is driving drunk in this analogy, by the way. I mean, it's like, how about don't get behind the wheel in the first place? Or look for ways to do it in a really safe and mitigating way. Like we have the, um, you know, obviously um, merit scholarships and getting as much as you can from scholarships and grants. Like we just um, put together the Access Lex Law Student Scholarship Data Bank. Um, last year released mm. it and it has over 800 scholarships in writing competitions specifically for law students. And this is um, one of our most popular resources for good reason. And that's very encouraging. It means a lot of people are looking for ways to do exactly what we're talking about here. Just lower the actual cost, lower their total out of pocket so that they can get through this with the least amount of borrowing as they can. But to be clear, those are not the tuition discounts that schools offer in the nope, first place. These are external scholarships. That's exactly so right. So those are, you're talking about $2,500 because you wrote an here, essay. Here and there. Yeah. The more, and the more you can get, obviously the better, right? Um, and, th and those, I mean, yes, are there a lot of them are those smaller amounts. And if you can get as many as you can, every little bit helps. Like you said, Nathan, it's one of those proactive tools. It's, it's, you know, that, that's, trying to get to ahead of having to borrow to, to attend. Yeah. I guess I just, I, I, I can't, I can't not continue to go back to the thing that is like an order of magnitude more important, which is the amount of tuition that you're going to pay in the first place. And, you know, to go back to your, I find your thing really interesting. I mean, not that you invented it, but you brought it up this, this idea of don't borrow more than your first year salary. Oh, yeah. If, one of those. if we're talking about public defenders, many law schools charge a public defender's first year salary in the first year, every year. Yeah, every year. Yeah. And that's where that kind of uh, threshold falls apart, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, at that, that point, was, it's like just not. It, it, it's, it's completely not right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I say and that's why when you ask, like, is there a set number that we recommend or no, there's not because it, because the, the disparity of starting of median starting salaries um, across even sectors uh, across sectors is yeah. so wide. It's so wide. Right. Because so we so when we when we do our coaching, we're talking to folks who are you know, on one end, uh, making, you know, big loss starting salaries, $215,000. And their goal is to pay off their student loans in three years. And on the other end, we have folks who are, like you said, making 
the lower starting salaries, 50, 60, the, the median starting salary across all sectors, like $75,000. And then so they're making that and they have the same amount, $130,000, $160,000 in student loan debt. And they're completely different uh, strategies for what they have, for what they're looking to do after school. They're not looking to pay off their loans in three years. They're, they're looking, not looking for looking public service loan. Right. Well, essentially, yeah, they're looking they, to get it forgiven. Okay. They're looking to get it forgiven. And that's through things like public service loan forgiveness at the 10 year mark. And so we definitely are looking, you know, when we have these coaching conversations, people are falling into these categories. And then you have the middle ground. And the middle ground is kind of the toughest place to be. The middle ground are folks that are going out and they're not working in public service loan forgiveness and they're using income-driven repayment and they still have the average borrowing loads of law students. And that's where we it's it's really becomes a, a, me, a matter of educating around, okay, this is where you're at. This is the situation that you're in. And I agree. Can we, If we could go back and, and help them to borrow less that would be ideal. But when we come, when it comes down to it at graduation, this is a situation you're in. What are your options? They can't make the standard 10 year monthly payment because it's, it's probably just too high for their, for their actual income and their budget. Even an extended 25 year term in, in many cases is too high. So they're looking at income driven repayment, no public service loan forgiveness. They're on the income driven repayment plans for 20 to 25 years. And then whatever's left at the end is forgiven. Okay. So, so there, that's the middle ground. The further caveat there is that that forgiven amount after the 20 to 25 years under current IRS rules is taxable. <laughs> I know. And I knew that you all, that you would laugh because that, and so we're, we're obviously advocating for all, all student loan forgiveness across the board should be, um, should be tax free. Well, um, to be clear, because if you to, get $150,000 forgiven, is it just a taxable event that year? Taxable event that year. Okay, so, so you're you're, just you're, gonna you're go essentially looking at a fifty grand or whatever it is, yeah. right? It's going to be a tax bomb at that point, <laughs> and you're, you're looking at trading in an income driven repayment plan for a IRS payment payment plan. plan. So yeah, you know what? And so 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 there's definitely there are definitely things about the current infrastructure and system that need to be changed because is this sustainable? Um, you know, we well, the first round of that forgiveness hasn't actually happened yet. It won't happen for a few years. But who knows what's going to happen when that actually comes to pass and how the IRS and how the government's going to react, right? That's one of the reasons we just say, let's just proactively make all student loan forgiveness non-taxable. That would make a lot of sense, right? It's non-taxable for public service loan forgiveness. The new, the new initiative that, that the administration put out around the income-driven repayment account adjustment saying that, you know what, it, it, we haven't been doing a good job about helping people track their payments towards the 20 to 25 year discharge. We're going to do an account adjustment now that includes all their, their, their longer forbearances. That'll move a couple million people closer to this forgiveness. For some people, they think it was like 40,000 people. It's going to mean immediate relief now. Those are really uh, fortunate people because under the, I think it's the American Rescue Plan up through 2025, 2025, I think, any forgiveness that happens between now and then is all tax-free. So we're seeing some signals from current legislation, from current relief measures that would indicate that this is something that's at least on the radar as a good idea. And so whether or not it sticks past 2025 and into the future, we'll see all that. The permanent stuff 
is is done through right through rulemaking, right? Um, the shorter term relief measures that have been largely implemented by the Biden administration and the Department of Education, they are don't get they're fantastic. I mean, they've they've spelled relief for hundreds of thousands of borrowers. I think the latest figure is around twenty billion dollars in student loan forgiveness, and um, and that's wonderful and. You know, we just look ahead and say, well, what is the what is the more permanent solution here? Because obviously, as we just were laughing about, a tax a tax a tax bill to the magnitude of fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in one year for money you didn't actually make based on your student loan is uh, is obviously not realistic. Yeah, but even forgiveness is just fixing the a symptom of a disease rather than like addressing the root cause of the disease in the first place. Yeah. Which is law school is getting lots and lots of money from the government and the taxpayers essentially bailing out other citizens. Like there's right. I mean, essentially that's what's happening. Yeah. It goes, it's the age old like um, discussion about, you know, how is the, the federal student loan system set up? Is it, is it, kind of promoting this type of um, environment. And, you know, I wish I had the answers, but in this, and again, it's like, it's like, like I said, that's sometimes the easier, sometimes the, and I, I'm not in the room where it happens, but sometimes the easier thing to do is to create systems, repayment plans, programs to help address, um, give people more flexibility and options than rather than going back and fixing the entire system altogether. Yeah. It's like, we're deciding as a policy, well, we need more lawyers, so we need to make legal education free. So here's what we'll do. We'll make it super expensive and we'll make the kids borrow all the money. And then after, then 20 years down the road, <laughs> then we'll forgive all those loans, you see. And so in the long run, it's, we made it, it's, fr it's, fr it's free legal education because we're committed to these ideas of access and justice and diversity and whatever. And we need all these people to go to law school. But so the way we'll do that in the first place is we'll have no cap on how much law school can cost. And we'll encourage everybody to go and we'll encourage them all to take out these personal loans. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it's technically they have to repay the money, but we're, but. it's like, well, it's like we've taken off in the airplane and we're going to build the landing gear while we're in, while flight. we're flying <laughs> and then we'll like, 20 years from now, we'll have, it'll all be sorted out. Don't worry. And meanwhile, there'll be five presidential elections between now and then and right. 10 con elections and of just Congress. Perpetual and like, stress of like, <laughs> what, what will happen when I get to land, right? You don't have a plan for landing. Wow. Derek, I guess one concern, I mean, we can't do anything. Well, I'm, I guess I'm being presumptuous here, but I don't think that we can practically do anything about this big system. Uh, but what can we do for our potential, you know, people who are listening to us, people who are considering law school, people who have debt right now, I think, um, telling them about these things makes sense if they already have the debt. But my fear is that you talk about these things and then people say, oh, that's what I can do. So I can go ahead and get that debt. And I would, I don't know. I, I does, your, does your software tell people how much money they're going to have to pay back per month to, to, to pay off your loan in, say, a reasonable time? I don't know what that would be, 10 years. <laughs> that sounds like an extraordinarily long time. But, you know. Um, and so they can start to feel it today. It's like, oh, geez, I'd have to pay. Yeah, we have a, a month. Yeah, I don't know if I can we, do that. It, totally. And so the um, yeah, one of the um, 
free tools that we have. Again, that's one of our most popular things is the calculator, the debt calculator. So it's accesslex.org slash calculator. And we actually import the um, cost of attendance information from schools. There's a, there's steps in the calculator built in where people can, can input their scholarships, their financial aid, their scholarships and grants. So it actually gets to how much are you project, projecting that you borrow for a three-year education at XYZ school, for example. Okay. So they do that. And, that, and they cost input, of living, right? They, cost of yep. living. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they input, their, they can adjust their budget in the tool kind of however they need to make it more, the most accurate depiction of their, of their legal, of their time. Um, and then at the end of the tool, they input their projected starting salary. If they're making nothing, their payment will be zero dollars a month uh, under income driven repayment. But under the standard and extended plans, it's based on the amount they actually borrowed. So accesslex.org slash calculator is what they can do to to walk through that budget. Yep. Um, and and you originally said, Ben, um, you know, there's not much we can do to to um, influence the overall like the legislation, the legislative piece of this. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a mammoth. I, it is. It, it's a huge undertaking. That's what our folks at our Center for Legal Education Excellence are really working on every single day. Um, but one of the really awesome um, channels that we've created for students and even administrators to use is um, our Make the Case advocacy campaign. And that's um, hashtag Make the Case. And it's on our website, accesslex.org. You can search for Make the, make the Case in advocacy. And this is a um, prepackaged language. It gives, it helps folks understand and students understand how they can reach out to their um, representatives in Congress. And it gives them, again, pre-written language around um, policy positions, uh, advocating for public service loan forgiveness or, in, or tax, ta- non-taxable income-driven repayment or anything along those lines. And, you know, one of the things that we know is that um, representative actually look at the stuff that's sent to them in one way or another. They might have staffers who read this stuff, but if you just actually email them or call them or send something, it's it does get read for the most part from what we understand, and it really does make a difference. So there's not nothing that we can do, and we try to provide tool a toolbox for people to reach out and really advocate for student loan reform. Okay, so there's let's forgive student loans and then let's also just stop giving such big student loans, right? Like if this, if the department of education said, Hey, we cap loans at $20,000. Well, then you run into the, then you, then you run into the problem of, um, you know, how, what are schools charging despite that? Are schools charging less because of that, um, change? I think they would, if they they, couldn't, if their students couldn't get those loans, right? Like you'd be like, Hmm. Well, but then enter, enter, yeah, but then enter the private loan industry, and do they pick up the 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 difference there, um, or are schools definitely lowering well, based on that? So I, just, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like an economist or anything like sure. that, but I would imagine that I know. if and I Nathan's was a shaking private, his head, he's like, "What are you? <laughs> it never well, even ends. if even if they would come in, at least the federal government wouldn't be complicit in the scam. I oh, mean, it, I." And, and private loan. I mean, you're, I'm, let's say I give out loans, right? I want to know the creditworthiness of the person taking out the loan, which is right. going to make yep. me think about the law school and whether they can deliver. And so I think that the number of loans would drop. And if the number of loans drops, then the, the schools are going to say, wait a sec. Uh, well, we can't really charge this. 
can't charge this. Yeah, and I think that that at the end of the it, it keeps ratcheting up, right? Because there certainly is, and you look across different programs across all of higher education, you have people that are attempting to um, to increase their education, to increase their quality of life, to to do the things that they want to do in their life, and you have different, you know different groups from different socioeconomic backgrounds who have different disparate access to resources. And so the argument continues to be, well, if the government turns down what it's letting people borrow, is it negatively impacting those that just have fewer resources in getting an education? And maybe the long-term effect of that would be that schools lower their tuition fees because of it. But in the short term, what does that mean for those populations? And so it is a, it's a chicken and the egg thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a vicious cycle type of argument. I, but my counter argument would be, yeah, in the short term, you're doing these people a favor. It's a, it's a short term and a long term favor because we're setting them up to be on a loan forgiveness program for 25 years. I, I don't, I don't know if that's a solution. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge I mean, listen, and I think that these are the questions at the center of the debate, like especially politically, around how this system is is built and how it's running. And so I, I wish I had the answer <laughs> the answers for you. Um this is and this is why our programs and services, you know, exist and why we literally are having thousands of coaching calls a year with students to try to navigate this situation. Um so, you know, I, I'm thankful that we have the ability to do what we do to try to meet people with this obvious need um, because, you know, we don't have the exact answers. We know what we want to advocate for and we know how st- we can help students advocate for themselves in student loan reform. But to, at the end of the day, you know, if somebody wants to become a lawyer right now and these are the options that they're given, we want to try to help them make that a reality in, in the most financially responsible way possible, you know. Everyone, that was Derek Brainerd, National Director of Financial Education at Access Lex. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot, Derek. Be LSAT famous or just send your general hate mail to help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, Nathan gets all those. So, um, oh, yeah. If, if you're hating me, you can just um, trust that he'll forward it to me. Questions about the LSAT demon, go ahead and email help at lsatdemon.com. That goes to our help team, by the way, which is amazing headed up by Jen and Haley right now. Uh, be nice also, to them. You can be as mean as you yeah. want to help at thinkinglsat.com. That's coming to me and I deserve it and I can take it. <laughs> be nice to Jen and all of them at, at, at help at LSAT Demon. Yep. Uh, check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 348 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't ever pay for law school. <laughs>